Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. In scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. When God made a promise to Abram, Abraham, because God had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and multiply you. And thus, Abraham, having patiently endured, obtained the promise. Human beings, of course, swear by someone greater than themselves, and an oath given as confirmation puts an end to all dispute. In the same way, when God desired to show even more clearly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it by an oath, so that through two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible that God would prove false, we who have taken refuge might be strongly encouraged to seize the hope set before us. We have this hope, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters the inner shrine behind the curtain, where Jesus, a forerunner on our behalf, has entered, having become a high priest forever, in the, according to the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, guys. We're so glad you're here. My name is Ian. I'm the pastor. And uh, yeah, well, we've been in a series talking about the beautiful life that Jesus has for us. And, uh, you know, I've, I've walked down this line a little bit. For me, things like melancholy, things like... Uh, kind of seeing things the way they are, maybe a bit of cynicism, a bit of skepticism, come quite easily. And so if you're like me, welcome. But sometimes, even for the cynic, even for the melancholy, it is good to focus on the beautiful things that Jesus has on offer to us, the life, the fullness of life that he has for us. And so in this series, we've just been taking kind of these concepts, and we've been looking at them in the book of Hebrews, and seeing how God might be meeting us here and inviting us to more. And so this morning, we're going to talk about hope. There was a uh, Finnish artist, her name was Agnes Dennis, and she had heard all the stories of the dissolution of our climate. You know, in the 90s, it began to become, I don't know if any of you are children of the 90s, we began to hear about the hole in the ozone layer. It was this big scary thing. You had no idea what was going on. But the idea that the, the life that we were living as a, as a society, as a sort of meta-society, Western culture, might be in some way challenging the stability of our planet began to become more real. And this artist, Agnes Dennis, was, was hearing this information, and um, you know, she was feeling a bit overwhelmed by the story. Because anytime you're talking about, like, cataclysmic failure of the environment, like, have you seen those movies where the, the Statue of Liberty is frozen the day after tomorrow? I mean, that's a great John Cusack movie, right? And anytime we're talking about this kind of thing that's so far beyond us, so if I said, like, hey, could you, could you help fix the planet today? The answer is, like, a little bit, but not really, Right? Like, you could help a little bit, but what is your little drop in the bucket going to do in the grand scheme of things? And if you hear these kinds of stories and you feel overwhelmed, that's what Agnes was feeling. But instead of sort of wallowing in this sense of despair, she conceived of a project 
an art installation, a piece that would both push back on the narrative that there was nothing that we could do, but also make it beautiful and make it desirable. And so Agnes Dennis, Joanna, you can put up that first picture. She conceived of this installation. It's called Tree Mountain. And there's over uh, 400 trees that are arranged in this pattern. And I, I put the artist's rendering up there so you could get a sense for it, because it's kind of hard to, to see what it would look like just in the picture on the bottom. And she had a bunch of people in Finland help her plant these trees. And each person who planted a tree was granted a certificate of caring for that tree. And these certificates are meant to be passed down from generation to generation is that there's this sense of tradition, this sense of, of the care and the sustenance of this art installation, of this sign that there may be something else going on. And so Agnes Dennis began her project, and we see a little bit of the growth there. But what a beautiful depiction, right? The sense that, that life is bigger than us, that in the face of despair, we need a hope that goes beyond even our lifetime, and so this morning, we want to talk about hope. I just want to offer a brief definition. Hope is a counter-narration of events that brings coherence to our lives. Hope is a counter-narration of events that brings coherence to our lives. Now, that is not in English. Let me offer you a better one. Hope is telling a better story that makes sense of all of life. You see, it's one thing, and I don't know about you, I, I sometimes want to live in a world where I can just kind of hold on to my idealism and like it'll all work out, but sometimes that hope is not grounded in reality. So we need both the promise that tomorrow will be a new day, but we also need that promise to be grounded in some sense of the real world. And so this morning, we want to look at how the writer of Hebrews invites us to a hope that tells a better story, a hope that makes sense of the reality of our lives. And so Ryan read for us in Hebrews chapter 6, and I'm going to read it again. It says, When God made a promise to Abraham, because he had no one greater by whom to swear, to swear, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently endured, obtained the promise. Human beings, of course, swear by someone greater than themselves, and an oath given as confirmation puts an end to all dispute. In the same way, when God desired to show even more clearly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it by an oath, so that through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible that God would prove false, we who have taken refuge might be strongly encouraged to seize the hope set before us. And so it says that there is this hope that is promised to us. And in order, in order to, to validate that hope, God has sworn by two things, the writer of Hebrews points out. And I want to just point those out to you this morning. The first thing that the writer of Hebrews says that God has sworn by is his own character. Now, in the first century, the time where this book uh, of Hebrews, this letter that we're reading through came from, the society itself was saturated with God's. You know, Paul walks through Athens in a similar place that this letter of Hebrews was written to, and he sees all these idols. He can see them. They're on, you know, they're in plain sight. And the pagan culture that the people of God were trying to find their way and follow Jesus within had this complex pantheon of deities, each promising their own benefits and blessings. 
Now, for the most part, because everybody was okay with the idea that there were so many gods, like it was just there as a part of the culture, none of these gods or goddesses were demanding solitary devotion on the part of the worshiper. They each kind of promised different things. You know, if you remember back to your social studies classes, you remember like Mars, the god of war, or Venus or Aphrodite, goddesses of beauty. And so they, they had this sense of something that they own, a corner that they stand on. And if you've ever spent any time reading Greek or Roman mythology, you, it's a lot more like a 21st century reality TV show than it is about like a holy God. Like the story of Narcissus, right? Echo falls in love with Narcissus, but Narcissus, you know, he, he pushes back on her advances. And then the goddess Nemesis is like, oh, this, this is not okay. So you know what, Narcissus? I'm going to make you fall in love with yourself. And Narcissus stands looking in a pool and so slowly deteriorates. You see, the gods and the goddesses, the stories they would tell, like, they weren't their character, their identity, the, the stuff that they were offering to the world was really no better than the worst humans. And the dwelling place of these gods was symbolized by Mount Olympus, a mythical far-off place where the gods served their own needs and stayed above the fray and the pain of the world. Essentially, the gods were far off, and when they did draw near to the world, it was as consumers or these kind of crooked chess masters pulling the strings of the world to suit their own desires or to get retribution against other people or other gods. But here the writer of Hebrews tells us, that God, in order to ensure the promise that he has given to each one of us, has, has set it in, in the reality of his own character by the beauty of who he is. And this is the character that we've seen fully revealed in Jesus. And friends, it is such a beautiful and profound and a freeing truth here this morning that God is fully like Jesus. That God is fully like Jesus. Jesus is fully like God. When Jesus comes to earth and he walks the streets of first century Palestine, he represents the fullness of who God is. So the stuff that Jesus does, sitting down with sinners and tax collectors, breaking down divisions, drawing near to those who have been outcast and exiled by society, serving the poor, worshiping God, walking with him daily, all of those things are a manifestation and a revelation of the kind of God. And Hebrews 1 picks up on this, and we've come back to this passage every week because it is foundational, both for the letter of Hebrews and also for our life as Christians. The writer of Hebrews begins in Hebrews 1. He says, long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. This is the Old Testament, friends many and various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being, and he sustains all things by his powerful word. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Friends, the author of Hebrews is inviting us to behold the stunning reality that God, though once shrouded in mystery, you think of Moses, and as he approaches Mount Sinai, there's this immense cloud of thunder and fire, and there's this awe-inspiring fear going on. But what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that God has spoken 
fully through the exact imprint of his being by his son. So the things that Jesus does, the things that Jesus reveals that he, God cares about, all of these things are a manifestation and a revelation of who God is. So to the question, can we know what God looks like? Yeah, he looks like Jesus. And Jesus shows us what God cares about. Jesus shows us how God feels about each one of us. And so God, in ensuring the promise to us, swears by the beauty of his own character. The second thing God swears by, according to the writer of Hebrews, is that God swears an oath. Now, oaths in this culture, like I promise, were kind of like collateral or credit in our own society. Now, if I wanted to go buy a car today, I don't exactly have $15,000 lying around. So I'd have to go to them, and they would run my credit to make sure that I have made due on previous promises to pay things off. And then the dealership would come back with an amazing financing offer. Some of you have been in this situation. It is so dehumanizing. You're just like, oh gosh, I just want to get out of here, right? But essentially, they're letting me swear by my own history and by the repossessing power if I fail to pay. Now, in the first century, to swear an oath was to to enter into a binding contract that you would follow through on your word. The author of Hebrews is making a profound point to us. Maybe, Maybe when you were a kid, you got into a similar kind of situation. You know, like, uh, you know, you're arguing some unprovable fact, like, my dad could beat up your dad. It's like, nah, yeah, yeah, huh? It's like, I swear to God. Now, if you're from the Bible Belt, you've done wrong. Like, you've done something really, really bad. And maybe if you have Catholic guilt, you've also done wrong. You've taken God's name in vain. Now, that's not what taking God's name in vain is. Spoiler alert, that's for another sermon series. But... This, this weight that we try to apply to our words, like, I swear on behalf of this or on behalf of that, this was a common practice, an accepted practice in the first century that was to ensure that you were going to fulfill your promise. You would swear by something greater than yourself. And Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you don't need to do that. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. But oaths were a way of sort of taking it to another level. And what the author of Hebrews is saying to us this morning is that God doesn't need to do this. He doesn't need to swear an oath. The beauty of his character is enough. He has shown us enough of who he is. But God is willing to work in the world as it is, not as it should be. So he is willing to go to any length to show us here how sure his promise is. The author of Hebrews is picking up on the words that God spoke to Abraham way back in Genesis 22. God says to Abraham, he's invited him on this journey. He says, go from your country, leave your homeland, and I will take care of you. I will make you into a blessing over all the nations. And then throughout that story, God says in Genesis 22, he says, by myself, this is God talking, I have sworn. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will indeed bless you. And I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. God swears by his own word, his own oath. But God's word, as we see revealed in Jesus, is not just a word that is spoken from heaven to earth. God is not lobbing commands from his high and lofty mountain. He's not on Mount Olympus like the Greek gods are sitting there in their own realm of existence. 
God is not shouting at us from heaven. God's oath, his word, as John picks up on, is his very presence. John 1 verse 14 says that the word, the oath, the promise of God took on flesh and, as Eugene Peterson says, moved into the neighborhood. He has taken his dwelling up amongst us. He has walked in our shoes. He has walked our streets. He has lived our life, as Hebrews picks up, over and over again. Friends, God confirms his word, his promise to us. Not simply by saying it, not simply saying, I'm God, you should listen to me, but by living it out himself. Hebrews 5, verses 7 through 10 picks up on this. It says, in the days of his flesh, the days of his incarnation, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, and the kind of son that we've already established in Hebrews 1, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus himself took on the reality of our lives, not because he had to, But because this is who God is, Jesus is the exact imprint of God's being. God is self-giving love. God is a love that will always relentlessly pursue us. And God doesn't confirm his commands by saying, I'm God, I've said it, it should be done. God lives out his commands. Jesus lives out our life, and he goes before us. Because of this, Jesus has been, as as the writer of Hebrews says, designated by God a high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, the author of Hebrews is trying to make this point. Our hope is secure. The promise is secure because of who Jesus is and what he has done. The author then is going to to offer us a beautiful image, a sort of mixed metaphor that invites us into a big, expansive hope this morning. And as we move into this section, I want to invite you to just contemplate two questions. The first question, where are you looking for hope in your life? Where are you looking for hope? It's one of my favorite questions to ask people in sort of public settings because hope kind of has this a-religious sense. You know, even if somebody's like, yeah, I don't really believe in God. You know, you're a pastor. That's weird. I I just love to turn the question like, hey, what, what does hope look like for you? And friends, I had that question for you this morning. Where are you looking for hope in your life? Where does your life feel hard? Where do you feel like you're at a dead end? Where do you feel like the things that you've done have consigned you to a path that you didn't want to walk down? Where are you looking for hope? And second, where is your hope right now? What or who have you convinced yourself will save you, will define you, will give your life shape and meaning, will make you feel secure. Friends, maybe you're a perfectionist here this morning. You think that because you do everything, which is all that you have, and you you give everything you have, and you do it better than everybody else, that that somehow secures your life. Maybe you convince yourself that your intelligence, your beauty, your bank account are going to save you. Because here's the thing, hope 
If we, if we ask the question of telling a story, telling a better story, and a story that makes sense of the reality of our lives, hope is ultimately about salvation. And so the question becomes, what is it that's going to save you? What is your hope in? Now, you may be here saying, and I've heard this so many times, well, I'm doing just fine, thank you. I don't need anybody to save me. Like, this is the argument of sort of the new atheist, is that faith, this, this need for salvation is just a crutch. Like, why, why do you need that? Why, do you, why are you so weak? Why can't you deal with life as it is? You may be thinking, I work hard every day. I get up and I go so hard, and I'm making a great life for myself. I don't need anybody outside of myself to save me. I'm doing just fine. Now, I have the privilege of knowing who I'm talking to this morning. I am talking to leaders in their field. I am talking to some of the the most intelligent, beautiful, emotionally intelligent, well-adjusted people that I've ever met. And we can pass the offering buckets now. (laughs) I know how awesome you guys are. I get to hear your stories. I get to see uh, just a brief glimpse into some of the things that you do. But here's what I'm certain of. In addition to being certain of how awesome you are, I'm also certain that you're going to die. So glad you came to church this morning. And hope is ultimately a question of salvation. So friends, what is your hope in the here and now? What is it that's giving your life shape and meaning? What is the story that you're telling? But in the face of your eventual demise, in the face of the thing that we all will face, what is the hope that you have that tells a story about death, that makes sense of the facts on the ground, that we are finite, that we do not live forever. What is the hope that transpires and transcends our stories? The generational hope that sustains us well beyond the bounds of our lives. Hope is ultimately a question of salvation. And if your answer is, well, I don't need anything outside of myself to save me, can I just offer the, the, the slight observation that your answer to the question, where is your hope? The answer is you. And for some of you, that may be working okay for you. But ultimately, for all of us, that runs out. When Hebrews 6, verses 18 through 19 tells us that we have this hope, a sure and a steadfast anchor of the soul, A hope that enters the inner shrine behind the curtain where Jesus, a forerunner on our behalf, has entered, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, uh, there's two images that the writer of Hebrews offers to secure and say this is the kind of hope that Jesus is inviting us into. And I want to take them in reverse order. The first is the, the image of the Holy of Holies. The author of Hebrews says that this hope enters the inner shrine behind the curtain. And Joanna, you can put up that picture of the, yes, this is an actual photograph taken of the temple. This This is from Google, actually. Now, the author of Hebrews says that the hope enters the inner shrine behind the curtain where Jesus has entered and ministers as a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, we won't go into all the Melchizedek stuff today. That's like Hebrews spells that out in great detail over the next couple chapters. But what, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus is the one who enters into the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies, for the people that this was written to, 
was this place where God dwelled. It was this, this place that was uh, outlawed to everybody for most of the year. And once a year, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, the place of God's presence on behalf of the entire nation. This would happen on the Day of Atonement. And this space was marked off in the temple by a curtain that went from the ceiling to the floor. And as Jesus dies on the cross in Matthew's gospel, he, he accounts that the curtain, the curtain in the Holy of Holies is torn from top to bottom, rending the things that would separate humanity from the presence of God completely void because of what Jesus has done this curtain, this thing that separates these spaces and marks certain spaces off as more sacred than others, has been torn in two. The author of Hebrews is telling us that Jesus, having died on the cross and raised to life, is now forever and eternally more in the presence of God. Hope is first and foremost about the presence of God. Hebrews tells us that because of what Jesus has done, we are anchored in that present, that we uh, now find ourselves along with Jesus in that space, that Jesus, in going behind the curtain that used to separate humanity from God, he didn't just go for his own sake so he could return to some sort of heavenly bliss. Hebrews 6 tells us that he went on our behalf, and he goes into the Holy of Holies, and he invites us to rest with him there in that space. But here's the thing, and this is the important part. According to Hebrews, Jesus isn't just hanging out there. Like, we have this sense of heaven that it's just this kind of static bliss where you float on clouds and eat cookies and stuff. But that's not the image that Hebrews gives us. What Hebrews says is that Jesus is there working tirelessly on our behalf as a high priest. That he is there interceding for us in the presence of God. The priest would be responsible for showing the people what God looked like, what he cared about. And Jesus has done this, revealing the Father fully. Jesus is our high priest, standing behind the curtain in the Holy of Holies. Hebrews 10 tells us, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Now you may think that just contradicts what you just said. He's sitting down. But the right hand of God is the place of ruling, of authority. Jesus is there as the high priest, the one interceding for us, and he's also there as the one who rules over all of creation, the one with the authority and the power, the one who brought the world to life is now ruling over it and sustaining it. The writer of Hebrews goes on in verse 10. He says, Therefore, my friends, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and the living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us approach with a true heart in the full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful." Friends, the imagery of Jesus sitting down after he's completed his course at the right hand of God declares that Jesus is not simply a high priest. He is priest and king. He not only intercedes for us, he rules the world, and he orders it for justice and for beauty. And we, because of who Jesus is and what he's done, have hope to approach God. And Jesus, as the one who reveals God fully, is king over all the world. Now, 
Here's what I know. I know that all that sounds real nice. It seems kind of ethereal and far off, right? Like Jesus is king somewhere behind some imaginary veil that we can't see. He's ruling. I guess it'll all work out. But the reality is, if I were to ask most of you, hey, hey, how are things going? Like, yeah, I mean, things are pretty good, but you know, life's kind of hard too. Like, life's kind of hard. So we, we've told a story, right? So what is hope? Hope is telling a better story. And this story of Jesus being king over all the world by giving of his life, sacrificing himself so that he might be our high priest and our king is a beautiful story. But it has to make sense of the facts on the ground. What does that mean for my life right now? And here's what I love what the writer of Hebrews is doing. You see, we have this sense that this, this hope seems far off, that it seems somehow removed from our reality. That hope is nice as an idea in the future, but what about my life right now? What about the storms that I'm facing? What do I do now? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us that on this journey of life, this journey that we all know is fraught with many dangers, it's fraught with distractions and sins that would blow us off course, painful moments, scary moments, things that would break us or sink us. The writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 6 that we have a hope that anchors our souls. That as we float through this life, as we hopefully are reaching towards a destination that is grounded in hope and eternal life, we have a hope right here, right now, that is an anchor for our souls, that holds us fast. The preacher John Chrysostom says, For the surge and the great storm toss the boat, but hope does not permit to be carried back and forth, although winds innumerable agitate it, so that unless we had this hope, we should have long ago been sunk. Friends, I don't know where you're struggling this morning, where you're feeling tossed and thrown about, but the writer of Hebrews is telling you, he's testifying to you, that because of Jesus, you have hope, not in the distant future, not that it will all work out in the end. It will, yes and amen. He is priest and king, but you have an anchor for your souls right here and right now. The image of, in Hebrews 6 is of the anchor being forever settled behind the veil. That this anchor, this hope for your soul is always in the presence of God. It is always bearing witness to what Jesus has done. And our anchor... This living and present hope is Jesus himself interceding for us, ruling the world, this big, great, cosmic God, but also an anchor for our souls in the very storms that we face every day. If your hope is in Jesus, you have hope in every storm you have refuge when the winds gall, when they rage. He himself is your anchor. And maybe, maybe you've heard of an anchor in negative terms. Like, oh, that, that, that's an anchor. That's dragging you down. That person's an anchor. It's a burden. And, and maybe for some of you today, you felt like, you know, you know when you're going through stuff and it like starts to manifest itself physically? Like you're going through something and it doesn't, it's not pain, it's not sickness or illness, but you're just so weighed down and heavy that you just feel heavy. You feel that burden on your chest. Or maybe for you, it is, it is a sickness. It is an illness. 
Maybe you walked in here today and just felt hard to get here because you feel like there's an anchor that's dragging you. And so I want to go back to the question that I asked you earlier. Where's your hope? Is your hope in yourself? Is your hope in the things that you can do? Jesus is inviting you to a better hope this morning, a hope that tells a better story, a hope that makes sense of the pain of this life, but is not leaving you and abandoning you to it, but is inviting you to see how God is with you in every moment. Joanna, can you put that picture up of the ship? I, I think about a picture, an image like this. Have you ever been like on deep sea fishing or somewhere out where you're on a boat in the middle of the ocean and like you can't see the land? You know how small you felt? Or maybe you've just sat on the beach and watched the waves come in. Like it, the, the ocean is one of those things. Like nobody stands beside it and is like, you know what? I'm pretty awesome. It's just like awe inspiring. Right? And, and when I think about our lives as this kind of picture, you know, Herman Melville talks about the, the sea, how subtle the sea wants to try to kill you. This sense that we're sort of floating on chaos, that at any moment things could change, the wind could change directions, and we could be in peril. I think so many of us, we feel that sense in our lives, that these storms of life come and we're like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to make it through this. And what the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell us is that this image that we have is not one of isolation, is not one of being abandoned, of being left without hope. This image is the exact life that God is calling us towards. You see, Hebrews conceives of our discipleship, our following, our apprenticeship to Jesus as a journey. And this ship, presumably, has set out from one place to go to another. Just as God called Abraham to go from your country, God has invited us to follow him. And as we go through this journey of life, Hebrews 6 tells us that we have an anchor for our souls. Hans Urs von Balthasar says that we float like a ship on the love of God. That he carries us and he sustains us through every storm and every season of life. Friends, you have an, a hope that is an anchor for your souls. You have a high priest who is in the very presence of God right now saying, that one's mine. And Jesus is our hope because of what he has done. And I know, I know that life is so hard, and we need a hope. We need a hope that is real to the realities of our everyday lived experience. And so if you feel like this this morning, if you feel like you are abandoned, if you're just floating on a sea of apathy or disillusionment or pain and suffering, would you hear this word this morning, that there is a hope for you? Jesus, the steadfast and sure anchor for your souls. He has given his life for you. He loves you, and he is with you every step of the way. Let us pray. Beautiful God, Lord, I stand before people who may be feeling that they are without hope. God, I just ask that you would, in your power and in your mercy, God, would you just confirm that this word is not just true of other people, but it's true of them. 
It's true of us that we have a hope because of who you are. Jesus, you are sure and steadfast. God, would you invite us to see that your presence goes with us every length of the journey. God, there was never a moment where you abandoned us or forsook us. God, that you have been with us every step of the way. And Jesus, would we see how this morning, this hope is a hope for our lives right now, but it's also a hope that transcends the bounds of our lives. God, a generational hope, an eternal hope that is forever settled. God, that in this life we follow you, we get to walk with you through the pain and the trials. And in death, God, we find that you are our living hope forevermore. Our great high priest, the one who sits down at the right hand of the Father, the one who rules in beauty and justice and joy for the rest of eternity. And so, God, would you help us here this morning to do as the writer of Hebrews encourages us, to lay hold of that hope. God, to claim it for ourselves, this hope that you hold out for all of us, this hope that you have extended to each daughter and son here this morning. God, would it be our hope? And God, for those who are burdened, who feel anchored by the trials of this life, would you show them that your yoke is easy, your burden is light, God, that you are our anchor. And in that, there is freedom and life and security that we will make it to the end of our journey. God, we ask all these things in your name, in the name of the crucified and resurrected Lord Jesus, the one who sits right now at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. In the beautiful name of your Son, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.